Welcome to the Millerville Community Church podcast of our Sunday morning sermon series, where the Word of God is always the focus of our hearts and prayers. The following podcast is available on SoundCloud Millerville Church, and subscribe to us on iTunes under Podcasts. Look for Religion and Spirituality and Millerville Community Church. And now, here is a message from Sunday morning at MCC. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you and we just worship you and adore you and thank you once again for giving us the gift of your son. We celebrate now and Lord, we would just ask that we would celebrate not just outwardly but within our hearts that we would have that heartbeat for you, that this would be a time where we once again renew our vows to you, to renew our heart toward you, that we would um, once again turn to you in thankfulness and praise for what you have done for us, and a remembrance too that you have been faithful throughout the generations, right from the very beginning you have been faithful, and Lord there are many times, um, many times that we can think of that we have been unfaithful, not just in our own lives, but in the lives of our forefathers, in the lives of the church, in the lives right from the very beginning, where we have been unfaithful. And yet you have remained faithful, and you have kept us, and you have brought us your word, and you have given us the way of salvation through Jesus Christ, and you have given to us your Holy Spirit, and you have given to us even a new nature. And Lord, um, Yet, in spite of all of this, we find it so difficult to be faithful to you. And so, Lord, I would just pray that you would renew in us that spirit that just is a spirit that is strong for you, that loves you wholly, that it has undivided attention toward you. And, Lord, we ask that as we spend time in your word, that we would once again um, just be fully for you, fully in our hearts, fully in our lives, fully in all the resources that we have at our disposal, that all would be geared toward where you are calling us. So we would just ask that you be with us now as we look into your word, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we've been doing the series on Nehemiah. And we're coming to an end, and it's been in conjunction with what Pastor John has been teaching on total warfare. And we have been looking at how Nehemiah um, really was doing warfare in, in one sense, and how God has called us to do warfare in our present day. So these two things have really dovetailed as well as in the Bible study as we um, were studying Nehemiah, and then we uh, just finished our study on Joshua and how um, the Lord really does raise up his servants. And I was thinking about this and what is it takes for us to go into battle. And usually when we think of war in our day and age, we think of equipment. Uh, hardly even people in a sense, because so much of it is about nuclear power and rockets and all these things that are not necessarily done on the ground level. But even if it were warfare, like World War I or World War II, where it's done on the ground level, um, they still were concerned about equipment and all these things. And if you've read any of these um, battle stories, you realize equipment has a tendency to fail. And it doesn't always work the way that you planned it, or you don't always have the opportunities that you had hoped for. And really what it comes down to is about the heart. 
and where the heart is and having the heart that really decides this is what I'm doing. This is the battle that I'm fighting. This is the hill that I will die on. And when we have that kind of heart for the Lord, then really and truly he has given us all that we need for a life of godliness and for life itself. And he says, you will be an overcomer. You will win the battle, but you must have the heart. And so he's always looking to our heart. And as we see, as we wrap up um, Nehemiah, which is what I'm going to be talking about today, the wrap-up of Nehemiah that we've been looking at all fall, we see Nehemiah had that heart. And the question for us is, do you have that heart? Do I have that heart? Do we have that heart as this local congregation that meets? And does the church worldwide have that kind of a heart? So that's what we're really looking at today. And we see that, um, just to recap, Nehemiah was given this huge task of going back to Jerusalem. So remember, he had a plum position. He was the cupbearer to the king, so he had a very prominent position to the highest-ranking person in the world. That's huge. Like he was, um, King Artaxerxes was king of Persia, which was the ruling empire over a huge area, 127 provinces and more by then. And yet, um, Nehemiah, when he was told Jerusalem's a mess and it needs help and the walls are broken, Nehemiah's heart was there. Even though he was most likely born in Persia, he was most likely there for several generations by now. So anybody who's been in Canada that long, if we have like two generations of above us that have been in Canada, we say, well, you know, I don't even know what my heritage is. I'm Canadian. Um, he would have still remembered that he was a Jew and his heart was in Jerusalem. And so when he heard that Jerusalem was a mess, that's where his heart was because God has said that he has put his name on the city of Jerusalem. And his chosen people were the Israelites and um, what became Israel as a nation. And so Nehemiah never forgot that, even though he had lots of money. He had lots of wealth and power. He was in a key position. Life was very good for him in Persia. He still was following after what he wanted to follow after. He knew the Lord. He knew the word. And yet, his heart was still in Jerusalem because he loved the Lord. And so when he heard this news, he prayed and he asked God, you know, what can we do? What, what should I do? For four months, he prayed and fasted and left this before the Lord. And finally, the opportunity came. He went back to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, just like he was in Persia, he was a leader. Everywhere he went, he had that kind of influence on people. And so when he went back to Jerusalem, he looked around. He spent time just examining the walls without any entourage or anything else. He just went around on his own with a couple of men, and he looked at the walls. And he kind of started formulating a plan of how they were going to rebuild it. These are the massive walls of Jerusalem. It's not this little tiny kind of, you know, we put up our picket fences. It's nothing like that. These are massive walls, and throughout those generations, that's how they protected cities, is with these massive walls. And if they didn't have the massive walls and the massive gates that went with it, 
then they were really pickings for any nation around them that wanted to kind of steal from them or take from them or overtake them. So Nehemiah, as he made that plan, he gathered together all the leaders and all the people. Like He didn't leave people out. Everybody was involved, and he says, this is how we're going to do it. And he made out a plan, and everybody was involved, and they were all on the different sections of the wall, and they were all rebuilding, and they even had huge um, opposition from Tobiah and Sanballat, who were um, foreigners who had settled there and who had become major leaders in Jerusalem and were completely opposed to Jerusalem being rebuilt because they knew that that would mean that their power would um, recede. And so they were um, completely against Nehemiah. And they made it very difficult for him. They kept mocking him. They laughed at the people and what they were doing. And they had children that were helping build. So they were laughing. You know, what is this? Yeah, that's nothingness. And so through that mocking, Nehemiah kept the people going. He kept their heart going. Then after that, when that wasn't working, they actually had a plot with armed forces to come and to kill them all. And even that, Nehemiah had a plan. We'll work with one hand and we'll keep a sword in the other hand. And that way, they won't be able to defeat us. And with all of the opposition, Nehemiah never lost heart. He never said, this is too big. I cannot do this. He never said, I don't want to do this. I have a cushy life back in Persia. I'm going back. He never said, well, you know, what can man do? We're just like one person. Nehemiah always turned to the Lord and got his strength there. And because he did that, he influenced an entire nation. And one person can make a difference if that one person has a heart for the Lord, like really a heart for the Lord. Not sort of like I like to do the show, but a true heart for the Lord. And we see that in Nehemiah. So um, Nehemiah was able to um, encourage the people, and he kept going around, and he was building himself. And in 52 days, which is incredible, in 52 days, the wall was rebuilt. And then they put in the gates, and they were protected. So Nehemiah did all this, and he also used much of his personal resources to do it. He had a huge table that seated 120 people, and they were sitting at it, and he was feeding people through this because they were impoverished. And when he realized that they didn't have any money, they didn't have any supplies, they didn't have enough food, he personally paid for this stuff out of his own coffers. This didn't come out of the king's money. This came out of his money. And so he was committed not just in his heart, but in his resources, in his time. Everything he had went into this. Now, I wonder... How many projects have we done where we have that kind of focus? How many times has the Lord called us to have that kind of focus, but we have been too distracted by all the other things that we'd rather do or that we think we ought to do or the worries of this world, and we don't do the project that God has put on our plate before us? But Nehemiah had a heart for the Lord. And he listened to the Lord, and he knew that this is what the Lord wanted. And he went forward, and nothing would dissuade him from what God had called him to do. So all is good. He set up the priesthood. He made sure the people were tithing again. He said, okay, wait a minute, you guys. 
I'm not leaving, because he's got to go back to Artaxerxes. He has a job there. He promised the king that he would return, and he's got to go back. But before he left, he said, now, do you guys promise that you will keep the Lord's house? Yes, we will keep the Lord's house. In other words, they will give their tithe in order to maintain the house of the Lord, which was the temple. Will you bring your sacrifices? Yes, we will bring our sacrifices. Will you do all the law? Because they read the law to the people again, just like they have to in every generation, because it's the old covenant, because they break it, because every generation has to recommit themselves to this. And so they read the whole thing again. Ezra was his buddy, and Ezra read the whole thing along with the other priests. And they said, yes, we will do everything that is written in here. Have we heard that before? And so Nehemiah said, okay, I've done everything I can for you. You're all established. Everything is back in order. The priesthood is doing what it's supposed to do. You're doing what you're supposed to do. God has been good to us. We are protected. Everything is accomplished that the Lord sent me here to do. Wouldn't you love to be able to say that? And that, you know, it's possible. We can be on our deathbed and be able to say, and saints have said it, I've done everything, Paul said it, I've done everything that the Lord set for me to do. Now, there's other stuff to do, but what has the Lord specifically told you to do, and are you doing it? And will you be able to, on your deathbed, be able to say, I did everything that the Lord told me to do. I did it. What a great statement. I would love to be able to say that. And I would love for you to be able to say that. So then he says, okay, I got to go back because I'm the cupbearer to the king. He gave me some resources to get here. He told me I could come. That was his idea. It was God's idea. But the Lord used this unbelieving king. And here I am. Now I've got to return. And so he returns. And the people carry on what Nehemiah told them to do. And the years went by. We don't know how many years, but it was a number of years went by. And we don't know how Nehemiah knew, but something precipitated him returning. And I'm thinking likely, just like in the first instance, his brother came and told him, you know, the walls of Jerusalem are demolished and we need to get there. And so he went there. Likely it was something like that. Likely somebody came and said, Jerusalem is being disobedient and they're not doing what they were supposed to be doing and they have turned away from the Lord and Nehemiah in his grief returns to Jerusalem and I can't help but make the parallel with the Lord with us because he has told us that he has given us everything we need to carry on. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But he has given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us a new nature. He's given us one another to support one another. And then he says, I'm going away. And when I return, I want to find you faithful. So when Nehemiah came back, the people had not been faithful. And he started looking around and seeing what the problem was. And the problem was um, really covered in these last chapters of Nehemiah. So 11 and 12 is where he's, um, the priesthood was being addressed and such. But 13 is where I really want to focus, the last chapter of Nehemiah. And um, when he returned, 
when he came back, he saw that things were all in disarray once again. And so um, the first thing that he saw was um, that the people, okay, the tithe is uh, 10%, that's what it means, that's the literal interpretation of it, 10%. And the Lord said, you are to give 10% of the first fruits of all that you have to the work of, of the Lord at the temple. So that was what was going to support the priesthood, that was what was going to support the keeping of the temple, and um, also the Levites throughout Israel. Now, Israel was quite a bit smaller by now than it had been, but that's what the 10% was for, and it was required of them. And um, so what had happened was they started to get focused on themselves, and they stopped giving the 10%. It was like, well, you know, are we talking before taxes or after taxes? Okay, well, let's go with after taxes. That's a smaller amount. And then it went to, well, like 10% all the time or like just like some of the time. And so then it went down to some of the time. And like 10%, that's a lot. We've got bills to pay. I'll do it next month because this month I've got to take care of these bills that I've accrued. And so 10% maybe every other month. And it got smaller and smaller and smaller until there really truly wasn't enough to support the priesthood. And so the priests now don't have enough to support them. And so they, the Levites, which are the teachers of the law, which the priesthood comes out of the Levites, they all started to say, you know, we don't have enough food. We need to go and make our own food. So the priesthood then stopped teaching the word and they went out and they took care of their own fields and they had to work in order to survive and so the teaching of the word hugely declined the priesthood declined the people stopped bringing the sacrifices because the word isn't being taught so the people stopped bringing the sacrifices into the temple and so now we don't have the grain offering coming in all the time. Like they had all these storehouses that were attached to the temple and they were all, they surrounded the temple. And now we don't need that because people aren't bringing in the grain offering and they're not bringing in the sacrifices like they used to. So we don't need all that space for the cattle and for the sheep and things that were brought in for the sacrifice. So these rooms are now empty. And so um, Eliashib who was the high priest, and Tobiah, who was an Ammonite who caused all the problems way back at the beginning when Nehemiah first came, they have a marriage alliance. Their, their kids, you know, one's a grandkid, etc., they're married to one another. So they have a marriage alliance. And Tobiah's not a Jew, he's an Ammonite. He's from a country that they were not supposed to intermarry with. In specific, they're complete enemies of Israel. And so Tobiah is now in the family of the high priest, and the high priest says, well, you know, we have all these empty rooms. Why don't you just live here in the temple? Tobiah, you Ammonite, who was told, clear them out. And so these rooms are for sacrifices. They're not rooms for people to live in. And Tobiah moves in to the temple. And so you can see how one thing leads to another. The people stopped giving the tithe, 
they stop hearing the priesthood isn't supported, they don't teach the word, the people don't hear the word, so they start really, truly, hugely disobeying what they're supposed to do. The temple's empty. They invite in these Ammonites to live here because it's not just Tobiah, it's his family. They invite them to live in the temple of God before the presence of the Lord. And all these things are like a snowball. And this is what happens when we don't obey the Lord. It's not just sort of like one little thing. One thing leads to another, to another, to another, until we've got a huge mess. And they had a huge mess. And so when Nehemiah came and he saw that Tobiah was living there, he, he, he's, no, he's not a, a wimp, this Nehemiah. He goes in. Tobiah's very powerful. He has a lot of political clout. He's got a lot of money. He's one of the richest men. That's why everybody wants to marry into his family. And he's decided that he wants to live there in the temple. And Nehemiah comes in. He goes, what is this? What is going on here? What is Tobiah doing living in the temple? And he grabs his pillow and his blanket and he tosses it out. And he gets all of his books and he tosses them out. And he takes all of his household items and he tosses them all out of the temple. Everything. He himself goes in and he cleans it out. And then he says, and you're out, Tobiah, and don't come back. And everybody else is kind of like, whoa. You know how it is when somebody gets angry and everybody steps back? And Nehemiah is angry. He's angry that they have allowed this. And then he takes, not only has Tobiah done this, but he's used the utensils of the temple for his own personal use. So they're all unclean. The whole thing is unclean because it has been contaminated and used for unholy purposes. And so then Nehemiah calls in the priest to cleanse everything, to pray, and to do all of the washings and things that were associated with the cleansing. And so Nehemiah gets things back in order. So that's the first thing he does, is that he reinstitutes the tithe. And he says to the people, now, let's go back to the tithe. Will you commit to giving the tithe again? And so um, they recommit to doing this. And he brings the priests back. And he says, you guys need to live here in this area. Like they had the priestly houses just on, outside the temple. And he says, you guys need to get back to doing what the priests are supposed to do, which is all the sacrificial system and teaching the people the law, the word of God. And so he reestablishes that. Then the second thing that happens is that they have not kept the Sabbath, and they have what's called profaned the Sabbath. Now, profaned isn't just, um, you know how we use the word profanity. It's not just a verbal thing. When something is profaned, it means that it has, has been used for dishonorable use, that which was intended for honorable use. And so when a day of the week is profaned, what it means is they have used that day, the Sabbath day, for dishonorable use instead of honorable use. They have not used it for what it was intended. So God gave them and us, it has not been revoked, and we have the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day was a day that was set apart to not do their normal activities. So there's nothing wrong with the normal activities of commerce, but the Sabbath was to be kept as a separate and holy day. Holy means to be set apart. And so it was meant to be set apart and not used for the everyday use. That would be a day where you can have extra time with your family, 
where you can have extra time with the Lord, where you can be quiet and go for a walk in the woods, where you can do the things that you can't do on the other days because you're too busy earning a living. And so the Sabbath was intended to be able for man to say to God, thank you for the rest that you have given me, and I trust you because in six days you will give me what I need to do, and um, you will give me what I need to support myself And on the seventh day, it's my way of trusting you that you have taken care of everything. And so they had stopped doing the Sabbath. And they had regular commerce like they did on every other day. It wasn't set apart to do the Lord's work. It was set apart um, no longer. And so it was like every other day, business as usual, seven days a week. And so when Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem and he saw all these Jews that were doing their normal commerce, the marketplace was open, the doors were open. It says that they were the sons of Tyre, which is from the north country, from the seaside, were coming into the fish market and you know bringing all of their fish to be sold that day. And it was just like a normal day. And Nehemiah said, what? What is going on? The Lord gave you the Sabbath to rest, and instead you use it to work and to carry on just like you always do. Like this is a, a day set apart for you, like for you to have rest and to be quiet and to have time to reflect and have that extra time for your family and for your friends. Why are you doing this? And so he says, this no longer is going to be a practice. You guys that are coming in to Jerusalem, get out. And so he kicks them out that day, but of course the next day they come back. And so they kept doing that. And he says, okay. He says, this is what we're doing. We're shutting the gates for the Sabbath. The gates are not going to be open. So these sons of Tyre still came, hoping that, you know, they know that people want their fish. Of course, these are amazing fish. And uh, so they sit outside the gate. And Nehemiah goes outside the gate. And he says, what are you sitting outside the gate for? And they go, well... We're thinking that they'll probably open the doors. And he says, get out of here. They're not opening the doors on the Sabbath. And so they kept doing that for a while until finally they gave up and they never came back on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah reestablished the Sabbath. And the question is, why, why in our culture are we so anxious to get rid of the Sabbath? That is to our benefit. Wouldn't you like a day every week where nobody has any demands of you and instead you get to be with your family, you get to be with your friends, you get to go for a quiet walk or read a book or do whatever it is you want to do. You get to come here without feeling like there's something else I ought to be doing. Wouldn't you like that? Why has our culture been so keen to get rid of the Sabbath? Do you know that not every country in the world has a Sabbath? There are countries, many, many countries, that are not based on Christian, Judeo-Christian values. They do not have a Sabbath. They do not have a break. They must work seven days a week. And we seem so anxious to give up our one day of rest in order to be able to work some more. Like, what's the matter with us? And that's really what Nehemiah says. What's the matter? And so um, he puts that guard on the gate so it won't be open. And the next thing that happens is um, the intermarriage. And the intermarriage here is um, the people have married the Ammonites and they've married the uh, Moabites and all these other countries. And they've brought them in. It's, and what they've done is they've mixed in all of their idolatry in with what the Jews are doing. And so what um, Nehemiah says is, 
when he finds this out because he had cleaned everything up. He had told them, you know, don't be doing this. And really, the word for us is not to be intermarrying with the world. That's a huge thing. Adopting the practices that the world does. We're to be a set-apart people, different. Not weird, just different in a good way. Like generous and thoughtful and kind. And um, we have a day of rest so we can invite people to our homes and so on and so forth. And we are to worship the Lord God, which, you know, the world doesn't do. And we're to show people how to worship the Lord God and to truly be devoted to him. And so um, they weren't doing these things because they were starting to go down that pathway of what these idolaters had brought in. And so when Nehemiah comes back and discovers this, he goes up to these guys who have done this again, and he goes to them, what's the matter with you? What are you thinking? It, it says that. He knocks them on the side of the head. He curses them. and I don't want to curse, but anyway, <laughs> he curses them. And then he's, he grabs a hold of them. Have you ever been so mad that you feel like shaking somebody? Well, Nehemiah does that, but he doesn't just grab them and shake them. He grabs their hair and rips their hair out. And they're going, okay, we get it, we get it. And so then they, th they throw out these um, mixed marriages again, and they start all over, and they say, no, we will be strong for the Lord. And I just, um, I'm, I'm so impressed with Nehemiah. Like, he had it made, and yet he came back. And there's three things that he does. I did not move this forward, which is fine, because I'm more interested in telling the story than moving this forward. But he did have three things that he said. He rebuked the people for what they did. He didn't just leave them there. But that really is the conviction that we have when we have done wrong. And the Lord calls us to repent of that, to confess our sin. So that he rebuked the people. So when the Holy Spirit convicts us, that really is in the same sense, the rebuking, like you did wrong. And, and you know, I had a realization yesterday. I was talking about somebody else, and all of a sudden I went, hey, wait a minute, I think I'm guilty of that very thing. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit who rebukes us. Now what am I going to do with that? Now what do we do with that when we feel that conviction inside? Well, we confess it. And we say, yeah, I, d I actually didn't do that right. I actually am wrong in, you know, what I said or what I did or what I didn't do, what I should have done, I'm actually wrong about that, and I need to change that. So confession is agreeing with the Lord on what he convicted us on and then saying, I can't leave it like that. I actually have to change that. And so um, that's what he does when he purifies them. They recognized it. He cleanses. He purifies them um, through the priesthood and sets them back on the right track. So that he restores them, and he sets them back on what they ought to be doing. And so that's what we do. We're convicted by the Holy Spirit. We agree with the Holy Spirit and confess it and say, yeah, I did do that wrong. And then we are restored by actually changing our behavior and changing whatever it is that the Lord's convicted us of. And it says in the scripture in um, 1 Peter 4.17, I do have those written up there. Okay, so did I write them up? Yes, there it is. In 1 Peter um, 4, 17. Hang on, I'm going to read out of my own Bible. 
for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and it begins with us first. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so what Peter is saying here is that it's, it's not judgment, i.e. punishment. He's saying we need to rectify some things. There's some things that have gone awry. We know that some things have gone awry with the church worldwide. And we know that some things have gone awry with the North American church and maybe even with this small church. And the Lord says, this is where we start the changes, is right here at home, in my own heart, in the heart of, of those that I'm closest with. And it eventually, this it's not like he's only doing a work in our hearts. He's doing a work in people's hearts around the country, around the world. And so as we respond to the Lord, things start to truly change. And so um, he tells us to do that. And he says also in uh, 1 Timothy 3.15, he says, um, uh, he's writing to them, this is Paul writing to them now, and he says, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. We live in a nation who has left the truth. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, all people are frustrated because we're not always hearing the truth. In fact, we so doubt what we hear from a politician or even from the media, and we know it's not the truth. And we're all frustrated that the truth is gone from our, from our culture. In fact, to the point where our young people are being taught there is no real truth. It's whatever you decide is the truth that becomes the truth. That's what's taught in our schools. And we know that's just stupid talk. Like, that's crazy talk. And yet, that's our culture. And the Lord says the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Where must truth first be found? It's here. And where is the truth found? In the word of God. And we teach the word of God because that is the truth. And we do not sway from it. We don't get deterred from it. We don't get demoralized. We remain faithful to the truth. And if we don't, you can be sure our culture is not going to. And so all of us want the truth and want the truth upheld. And so here it is. And then in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 9, There we go. Um, he says this. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the priesthood now is not some um, priesthood like it was back in Nehemiah's day. The priesthood now are believers. We are the holy royal priesthood. We're the ones who are set apart to bring the good news to the world, the good news that Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, fully God, fully man, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again from the dead by the power of God, that he who knew no sin died for sin on our behalf. That is the good news, that the penalty no longer will be applied to us if we believe in Jesus Christ, his Son. And so that is what we are the priesthood of. That's what we bring. That's the message from God that we bring to the world. 
And in verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen race. This is believers. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So I just want to um, conclude with these simple things that seem like nothingness. Like these are not gross immoralities that they were doing. It started with they didn't tithe, they didn't keep the Sabbath, and they started to hang out and do what the world is doing. These are very easy things to slip into, to forget the tithe, to forget the Sabbath, and to start doing just like the world does. Is this us? Could this be you? Could it be me? Are we reflecting on that? Are we taking that before the Lord and saying, Lord, maybe it's me. It's not just them, but maybe it's me. And maybe the Lord is saying to us, you need to change this. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Our response is to agree and say, yeah, I need to change this. And then to actually change it by the power of God, because he's given everything that we need for life and godliness. He's given us his word, which we have, like you don't just read this in an evening. He's given us a lot here in his word. And he's given us his Holy Spirit to dwell within, to empower us. And he's given us a new nature. We are not what we were before we knew him. When we believe in him, he actually gives us a new nature. He's given us everything we need. Now all we need is the gumption like Nehemiah to do what the Lord has called us to do. And I pray for you, I pray for me, I pray for us, that we would be that kind of people. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for you are so kind to us. In every way, you have supplied us all that we need for a life of godliness, of um, being able to follow in your ways, to be able to do the things that you've called us to. And yet, it's just very simple things that we start to neglect. And before we know it, we've gone down that same slippery slope that generations before us have done as well. And yet, you remain faithful, even when we are unfaithful. You remain solid for us. So that when we return and you call us to return and you tell us we will return, that we will be overcomers, then you empower us to once again do what you have called us to do. And Lord, I pray that for each one of us here, that we may be that kind of people, empowered by your Holy Spirit, desiring to preach the good news to others and to live it out in kindness and love toward others. And Lord, that many might come to faith in you because of the faithfulness that's found in this room. We thank you, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Millerville Community Church is a non-denominational country-style church with a huge heart for God. You'll find a warm, relaxed atmosphere at MCC. We love worship and music here. We are a Christ-centered church with all kinds of opportunities to reach out to the communities. Our Sunday service starts at 10.30 a.m. and runs till noonish. All are welcome. Coffee and snacks are served. Children's church and child care are available.